Welcome to the seventh episode of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about My Foolish Heart from 1949. Susan Hayward stars as a woman who looks back on her first true love played by Dana Andrews. If she hadn't had the rotten luck to compete with Olivia de Havilland, she would have won the Best Actress Oscar hands down that year. Hayward plays a character so bitter, we shouldn't care about her plight, and yet viewers forgive her everything because she makes us feel the rugged contours of her unhappiness. My Foolish Heart takes women's troubles seriously without apology or condescension. Director Mark Robson composes a tender regard for the travails of a woman's life when things can turn on a dime or, in this case, on a frock. Vagaries of chance haunt Susan Hayward's fate until we see how dearly she's still paying for a run of bad luck. When the film opens, Hayward's Eloise welcomes an old friend from university into her spacious faux colonial home in the suburbs. Before we learn anything else about Eloise, we hear that the house costs $14 a square foot. It sets the tone immediately for the world she occupies, where things are measured on their market value instead of what they are worth at a personal level. Brass tax equations of real estate have little currency for an unhappy woman. Eloise's friend Mary Jane, played by Lois Wheeler, appears overly formal with her host, something you wouldn't expect of old college roommates. Other than the usual gossip about classmates, there's a definite reserve between them. Drinks are poured. Cigarettes are lit. Before long, the ladies are interrupted by Eloise's daughter Ramona, played by Gigi Perrault. The painfully awkward little girl adds to the strain between the adult women in the room. She wants nothing more than to flee the room and find solace with an imaginary friend she calls Jimmy. Deep in her cups, Eloise blurts caustic remarks and has little to praise. When her husband rings for a lift, she lies about being blocked in by Mary Jane, who cannot locate her car keys. Once we learn that Eloise married Mary Jane's former beau, we can only guess that her guest maintains a generous approach to Eloise because she realizes how miserable the woman of the house is, pickled in scotch and pining over her first love, who was killed during the war. She may live in a grand home, but Eloise resides in a hovel of her own misery. Eloise turns maudlin and teary-eyed discussing Walt, the one who died. When she hears her husband Lou come through the door, she hisses to Mary Jane to entertain him and runs upstairs to freshen up. Lou, played by Kent Smith, marches upstairs to catch Eloise furtively splashing in eye drops to conceal many afternoon cocktails. They tear strips from each other. At one point, Eloise begs him to throw something and not just stand there looking at her like a rotten owl. He lobs quite the explosive in return. Not only does he want out of the marriage, he wants to run off with Mary Jane, and they want to take Ramona with them. The row subsides with news of Lou's plan. Eloise doesn't care if he walks out, but she's gutted to think about losing her daughter. Let's begin with the dress, because that's what occasions the flashback. Eloise takes a dress off the hanger and cradles a brown and white buffalo plaid dress. She asks Mary Jane the rhetorical, I was a nice girl, wasn't I? 
Before she asks the question, viewers wonder why she hangs on to an unfortunate dress. It must have memories woven in the fabric. For me, the whole picture revolves around this dress and what it tells women about their fashion choices. The film shines a light on how many difficult choices women face in self-presentation. It's never just a dress. What we wear leaves us vulnerable to judgment, derision, and a host of assumptions about how good, smart, or capable we are. Women's pictures elevate the significance of style details to an unwritten code that informs our lives. In a classic double bind, women negotiate sartorial choices that have both enormous importance and absolutely none at all. In woman's pictures, viewers bask in plots that measure thread and texture among layers of stylish import. Ask a woman what she wore the night she met the love of her life and odds favor her total recall. If a woman pays no attention to matters of style, she's a rube just like Jean Crane in her mail-order dress in a letter to three wives from 1949, wearing a tatty chiffon monstrosity with too many tears and improbably placed floral appliques, she makes her social debut outfitted as a hick among soigné country club wives. A woman's lack of style draws social embarrassment. It renders her a Christmas tree, a snotty teenager's brand over-embellished Barbara Stanwyck in Stella Dallas from 1937, whose lack of taste authorizes her stuck-up daughter to leave and pretend her mother never existed. Style deficiency paints a woman as a gay crasher from the wrong side of the tracks, as Lana Turner's taxi dancer appears to be among spoiled rich kids in These Glamour Girls from 1939. A series of awkward, ill-fitted gowns prepare Olivia de Havilland for her father's psychological abuse and the cruelties of Fortune Hunter in The Heiress from 1949. If a woman pays too much attention to fashion, she's a bubble-headed halfwit with nothing better to do, like Scarlett O'Hara before she must plow the earth to survive, before the war when women did little else than boast about the size of their waist. An obvious focus on style indicates an outrageous socialite with, with too much time on her hands, like Rosalind Russell and the women from 1939. She wears a shirtwaist dress with a bustle to a fashion show where she declares with dramatic irony that no one disputes how I wear clothes. Or if she devotes her life to fashion, like the dress designer Barbara Stanwyck plays in There's Always Tomorrow from 1955, she makes herself vulnerable to scorn. When Stanwyck's character makes a friendly overture to, jo to Joan Bennett by offering her a dress straight off the runway, Bennett's character smugly dismisses the need for a stylish dress to stage a romantic evening with a husband played by Fred McMurray. Busy wives and mothers don't have time for such larks, she basically scoffs. Bennett relegates Stanwyck's professional accomplishments to the trash heap with a single eviscerating comment. In the style wars, what the right dress can do for a woman has endless variation on film. And the scenario never dulls into cliché. Call her Madame Satan from 1930 in Adrian's sex bomb torso cutout costume for Kay Johnson that she uses to win back her husband. Joan Crawford in Simple Moiré Silk in The Last of Mrs. Cheney from 1937, when she has a society dame drooling over her gown, which helps Joan gain entry into an elite circle.
Betty Davis greets the family in a long-sleeved voluptuous number, accented with fresh camellias as a newly made-over glamour queen after a nervous breakdown in Now Voyager from 1942. Anna Nagel, who plays a poor Irish immigrant shop girl who turns up to a society ball in her mother's vintage blue gown and becomes a modern Cinderella in Irene from 1940. A dress might spell social suicide or a passport to mobility and opportunity. The right frock opens doors. I could go on and on with examples. Fate and fortune turn on a dress. Susan Hayward's character Eloise learns that a frock matters not only for the impression it gives, but also how it frames power relationships with other women as well as men. What you wear makes you vulnerable, as Hayward so adeptly underscores with a stirring performance. Playing an Idaho girl enrolled in her first year in a New York City college, she makes an inauspicious social debut in the wrong dress. Naturally, she wants to look as though she's earned the passage from the Rocky Mountains to Gold Standard Metropolis. Except she made a greenhorn mistake by assuming a shop clerk in Boise, who swore on her life, knows what will pass for the height of fashion in New York City. Eloise illustrates the the reason for good advice that tells you to wait until you get to your new location to shop so you can see what's really in style without having to guess or rely on a shop girl's word. Eloise wears a brown and white buffalo plaid swing dress with a scoop neck, which bears every aesthetic hallmark of an unsophisticated style frontier. Broad, safe, simple. First, in the words of Prada, brown seems difficult and unappealing. It's, it is a tricky choice for a party dress. The hue bespokes industry, acumen, and application. Brown connotes intelligence and serious engagement with work and study, not twirling on a dance floor with a new bow. Too somber for flirtation, brown amounts to frivolity's antidote. Think of Katherine Hepburn's style blunder when she marries Robert Taylor in a brown dress and then meets the society friends in it afterwards in Undercurrent from 1946. The next day, he rushes her to a dress shop to remedy her social gaffe. That's not to malign the shade that has a wide range of utility, but a cocktail dress is not brown. Betty Davis in All About Eve from 1950 has bigger fish to fry than having any fun. She wears Edith Head's famous frock with dark mink pockets, but the dress itself is really more of a rust color than solid brown. Rust has enough energetic red to lift a muddy hue. Susan Hayward's Eloise wears a dress that assumes afternoon activity rather than an evening formal. The buffalo plaid print seems more aligned with outdoor pursuits or a picnic. As closely as it resembles a tablecloth, it suggests hidden comestibles or hay rather than a lady of intrigue. Only gingham would have surpassed the checked pattern in the infantilized apartment. A scoop neckline feels somehow askew for New York City in 1949. Something about it looks saccharine, too innocent, more on par with a sweet 16 party than a grown woman in university out on the town. Eloise looks out of step with her classmates. Snobby Miriam Ball, played by Karen Booth, takes joy in pointing out that no one wears a dress like that in New York anymore. We don't see Miriam say that to Eloise. That happens before the scene begins. We get the aftermath. 
What an excruciating feeling when the most stylish girl at school criticizes your clothing. That's the sort of burn that remains familiar for many women watching. A negative comment from a man all too often is water on a duck's back because few know anything about fashion. But when a stylish woman slates your dress choice, you are left gutted. Miriam's cutting remark shifts Eloise to the party sidelines, where she mules and nurses her wounded self-confidence. She withers under a fashionable girl's pronouncement. Only one thing can restore Eloise's evening from self-pity in the corner, and it comes in the guise of Walt played by Dana Andrews. He tosses a cigarette without looking, and it hits Eloise in the corner. He says he's sorry when she cries out and hopes he didn't spoil her dress. Eloise replies acidly that she wished he had. She doesn't conceal her bruised ego with Walt. Instead, she launches straight into complaining about Miriam Ball. Walt knows Miriam's name before he gets Eloise's. She repeats Miriam's review of her dress. Walt dismisses Miriam's criticism outright. Walt reasons that most likely her dress was manufactured right there on 7th Avenue, so it must rate as fashionable for the city. His argument seems persuasive on the surface because the garment district had such a, a strong level of production and influence in American clothing industry up until the 1970s. But just because brown and white buffalo plaid comes out of a New York sewing machine doesn't mean shops stock it or that women of Gotham elect to wear it. Eloise has little interest in poking holes in his theory, however. She's content to squeeze comfort from his explanation. He's sweet and kind about it. Walt also endears himself to Eloise and the viewer because he shares his own struggle with gaining social acceptance of an evening. He says, I couldn't afford a dinner jacket and a girl to explain why he doesn't have a date. Walt admits that men must often walk a financial tightrope to balance the right clothes and meet extravagant costs of squiring a date to a formal dance. His admission humbles a man who looks like he never had a shred of self-doubt. With the most desirable man in the room by her side, Eloise makes a full social recovery. Along with his arm, Walt proffers fashion schadenfreude when he issues a devastating comment about Miriam's ensemble. Even if men possess zero actual knowledge about fashion, they can still render scathing remarks that invalidate a woman's style choices because in the end, women like Miriam Ball think what men have to say matters most. When Walt looks at Miriam Ball, he takes less than a second to declare her a frump. He repeats it a few times. He bases his opinion on the fact that he knows people who went to Paris. By proxy of association, he may claim a mantle of style authority. Dana Andrews, with all of his brillantine charm, approaches Karen Booth's Miriam Ball, and she stops to listen to him because he's Dana Andrews and he's a babe. He looks like a better catch than her own date. Walt smiles and claims to know her already. In an instant, he rescinds Miriam's status as fashion queen. She might as well be a slug and Walt a large canister of salt. Walt compliments her column gown. She thanks him, stepping into the trap. He adds that he had visited a mining town recently, and every girl there but every girl wore the exact same dress as almost a kind of a uniform. How uncanny is it that she's wearing the same dress? Miriam shrivels without a sound. 
When he gets started on her hair, she makes an excuse about an early morning and abruptly exits the ball that had just started. Walt's opinion lacks any validity. It's a lovely Grecian drape. But since he's handsome and dapper, his assessment may as well be the writ of Pharaoh Ramses carved in stone. Defenseless, Miriam suffers the blow. The vagaries of style limit a woman's confidence that she can always showcase a chic ensemble. Subjective, ever-changing, and the sight of a thousand insecurities, fashion means every woman with a pulse knows how the room dims and shrinks in the wrong dress. Eloise later connects the dots for how a dress shapes an evening. In his bachelor flat, she realizes the home-on-the-range dress left her vulnerable to not only catty remarks by classmates, but also wolfish men on the prowl. Eloise's dress achieved the same result as a large neon sign announcing her recent arrival from the sticks. Unaccustomed to a man with moves and a game plan, she accepted what he said and did at face value, influenced perhaps by what the ill-chosen dress suggested. Adam and Galinsky published a study in 2012 that identifies a process they term enclosed cognition. They trace a correlation between what we wear and how it influences our behavior and decisions. In Eloise's case, she became as naive as the design. Her guileless dress served as gift wrap for a man on the hunt for an easy pickup. She tells Walt, we only met because I wore the wrong dress. When the film flashes forward into the present, pragmatic Mary Jane understands the way the wheel of fashion fortunes turn. I could have been the girl in the brown and white dress. Anyone could have. Good or bad luck often comes off the rack. Jean Miller, who J.D. Salinger picked up at a pool when she was only 14 years old and carried on an affair with the girl for five years, recalled in an interview that Salinger hated this picture. Predictably, he adopts a snobbish remove from a potent woman's picture that vastly developed his underwritten and sour story, Uncle Wiggily in Connecticut. Gene Miller reported that Salinger believed everyone checked their brain at the California border before they entered Hollywood. Salinger declared the film made sentimental hash of his story and that it was trash. Salinger's biographer, Paul Alexander, echoes the literary pearl-clutching. He cites the familiar slurs about soap suds and weepies to discredit the value of the film adaptation. He claims that Salinger wouldn't grant permission for any of his work to be developed for the screen after My Foolish Heart. This sort of commentary always boils down to sexist denunciation toward anything that appeals to women and their emotional experiences. A knee-jerk reaction against women's concerns and stories feels lazy and puerile. It's just a highbrow version of cooties. Grow up, fellas. Salinger was content to create a cardboard lush whom readers could scorn. By contrast, eminent screenwriters Julius and Philip Epstein delve into the corrosive surface of Salinger's story for a greater empathy for Susan Hayward's Eloise. Salinger's story feels trite and two-dimensional next to the Epstein brother script. They highlight a universal quality about Eloise's misery, which she wallowed in without finding a way out um, to grieve and move on. More than a few women entered unhappy marriages because of a surprise pregnancy. The Epstein brothers make Eloise a human being with dimension.
The Epstein Brothers script also shows viewers how the war changed women. It wasn't just something that happened to men over there. Eloise pitched in for the war effort, just like most women in America. Women sacrificed, they had their losses, they made do, settled, and worked hard. And then what was their big reward for all the hard work and forbearance? A big house in the suburbs with a dullard, a rotten owl? Fans of women's pictures will feel the truth and tragedy in Eloise's story. I'll close the episode with a brief excerpt from Beverly Linnett's biography, Susan Hayward, Portrait of a Survivor. Yes, in 1949, My Foolish Heart was definitely a woman's picture. Dana Andrews and the male lead acquitted himself admirably, but pitted against Susan's portrayal of Eloise and the song title, he came off third best. Here, as in Canyon Passage, the intimacy between Susan and Andrews came to a halt the minute the camera stopped rolling. Commenting today upon their on-screen relationship, Andrews echoes the words of most of Hayward's leading men. I could say Susan was self-centered, but almost everyone in our profession is. She was a very strong young woman with a steel will. She was most attractive and always pleasant to me. We worked extremely well together but we almost never saw each other socially. There would be one time worth commenting on, but not until a few years later. Director Mark Robson observed, you know, there are times when it's advantageous to a love story if the two leading players are not too close. They save their emotions for the camera. I've seen enough instances when co-stars were making it in the dressing room. When they were called on set a few minutes later, the effect on their performances particularly in a romantic scene, was disastrous. They were so afraid something would come across, especially when one or the other or both were married. They subconsciously froze. Take Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. They were madly in love when they did the VIPs, yet their chemistry in the film was non-existent. Returning to Susan, Robson continued, I think she didn't trust actors or actresses. She had a few directors in the beginning of her career who were out-and-out bastards and gave her no help at all. But once she felt she could trust a director, she'd work her ass to the bones for him. She trusted me and the part of Eloise Winters, ranging from sweet innocent to alcoholic young matron, was an actress's dream. It had Oscar written all over it, and I can remember the exact moment when I started placing bets that she would catch a nomination. It was during the scene, just leading to the flashback, when she sobs, I was a nice girl, wasn't I? By the time Foolish Heart wrapped, we were convinced we'd sweep the Oscar field. Oozing with optimism, still preening over his best years of our lives triumph the year before, Sam Goldwyn rushed My Foolish Heart into Los Angeles theaters early to qualify for the 1949 awards. The reviews only reinforced everyone's optimism. Looks magazine review was typical. My Foolish Heart tells of a simple wartime love story that ended in heartbreak. These are ingredients for a typical soap opera, but My Foolish Heart rises above its material every step of the way. It proves that freshness can be given a much worn story if it is approached with a light touch, an adult point of view, and a warm understanding for the weaknesses of recognizable human beings. It merges a rich, delicious movie that every grown-up moviegoer should cherish. In her best screen job to date, Miss Hayward makes the tragedy of a girl in love 
in, during wartime, very real indeed. My Foolish Heart opened in New York City at the Radio City Music Hall on January 20th, 1950. A few weeks later, although the anticipated sweep failed to materialize, Academy Award nominations went to the song title and to Susan Hayward. And the winner is, on March 23rd, 1950, for the second time in three years, Susan had to sit and watch with frozen smile as another actress rushed to the stage of the Pantages to accept the coveted Oscar. This time, it was Olivia de Havilland for her portrayal of Catherine Sloper in The Heiress. The award was not entirely a surprise. Earlier in the year, de Havilland had been chosen Best Actress by the New York Film Critics Society, and most of the Academy felt that she deserved an Oscar for her role in the previous year's The Snake Pit as well. Nevertheless, de Havilland now had two of the statues, the other one for To Each His Own, and Susan had none. With her eyes blazing and just a trace of smile on her lips, Susan repeated the prediction that she had made two years earlier. There will be other chances. Don't worry. I intend to win one of those things someday. Now, no one scoffed. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about The Joyless Street from 1925 with Greta Garbo. Thanks. Bye-bye. I got an island in the Pacific Everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tell